You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. And in this new season of Fundraising Radio, we are changing things up and talking about sales for early stage startups instead of just the fundraising portion of it. And today as a guest speaker, we have Lucas Price, founder and CEO at Yardstick. Yardstick optimizes your sales hiring by using the best interview questions, structured interviews, and scorecards to identify sales talent. And this is exactly what we're going to cover in this interview. We're going to cover how you founders can figure out what kind of questions to ask, how to avoid questions such as what is your greatest weakness, and things of such. And also we're going to cover, of course, uh, what are scorecards and how they are used in Lucas's hiring process. So with that in mind, Lucas, let's kick it off with your short uh, background and uh, just a few words about your stick from yourself. Yeah, Constantine, thanks for having me. I, I uh, Before starting Yardstick, I was the uh, VP of sales, the head of sales at ZipWhip, which was a text messaging software company. We took uh, business phone numbers and turned them onto the text messaging system and then gave them software to manage their customer conversation. I grew the, um, was part of growing the company from $250,000 in MRR, built the team, the sales team that took it to over a hundred million dollars in, in, in ARR. I'm sorry. I said MRR, ARR on both of these, um, 250 to hundred million in ARR before it sold to Twilio almost two years ago for 850 million. And after some time off and kind of thinking about some of the problems that I faced at ZipWhip and how there could be a software solution to them, that's when I, I decided to start Yardstick. That is a cool background story and thanks for sharing that one. Uh, so let's let's start with ZipWhip, just a few more words. Uh, since you did reach quite a bit of success there, uh, let's talk a little bit how you started that path to the success of so when you joined it was like what uh, you worked there for about almost six years and you started in 2014. So when you just joined uh, ZipWeb, what were the first steps that you just took to get the company on the right path to get to that $100 million in ARR? Yeah, there were a couple sellers um, that were that were uh, somewhat productive when I joined, but they were um, there was not a lot of visibility into what they were doing. There was no CRM. Everything was just in emails. The emails weren't being compiled into spreadsheets and stuff like that. And so the first thing I, I did was try to figure out the truth of what was really happening, where our customers were coming from, why the customers were buying the product, how productive the sellers were, what type of inbound that we were getting. And so, you know, the very first thing was, was like find out the truth. And the way I did that at the time was through Salesforce. Um, you know, HubSpot's tools were not as good on the CRM side then as they are now. And so Salesforce was really the go-to for everyone. We set up Salesforce and started getting a lot of our data flowing into there really quickly so that we could kind of see the truth of what happened and make decisions from there. Yeah, starts with the CRM. That's most of it does. Uh, that is great. On this note, quick question on the management side of things. So you did say that, you know, it was unclear what the salespeople are doing. You know, there was not much transparency and yeah, CRM definitely fixes a lot of those questions. Uh, but what I've seen some founders do is be extraordinarily overbearing over salespeople. So not just the CRM, but also 
pretty much updates on every other deal that they're working on, like what's going on, what kind of help they need, and just gets under people's skin. Seen it far too many times. Where do you think is this limit between being overbearing slash or uh, being actually supportive? Yeah, you know that that's a good question, and it's hard to answer in the in the abstract. Um, you know, the I, I think the reality is is that when you have a salesperson show up on day one, that you're going even if it's only for the first few days, you need to be a little bit of a uh, of a, um, I guess what micromanager, you know, while you're gaining trust with them. And, and that might just, that might only last a few days, but, they, but they need to learn the things in the, in the first few days. And so it might feel if, if you had that level of engagement forever, then it might feel micromanaging. And so there is a, a so hopefully the salesperson is really taking hold of their ownership of over their own results and stuff like that early on and you build trust and you don't have to micromanage and um and that's you know part of it. On, on the other hand if you hired the wrong salesperson you're going to continually feel like you need to micromanage and then as a manager you need to be able to tell the difference between the two you need to tell the difference between like okay yeah. I, I hired someone who is taking ownership who is doing the right steps and so I need to give them the right support, but not be overbearing. It's 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 hard to kind of say specifically what that means without looking at the individual situation. But there definitely is a balance there. One hundred percent. Let's let's you know this podcast was built upon the motto of no bullshit, which means that we're trying to give some actionable advice. So let's try to plug in some actionable advice here and give some specifics on let's say number of meetings. So let's say you have a team of ten people. Three of them are salespeople. One is the CEO who's kind of the head of sales just because you don't currently have a head of sales. Uh, with that in mind, how many team meetings and how many individual meetings should there be? Yeah, I, well, so, I, you know, again, th this is, I, I think there's different answers to this. Yeah, and certainly. When when I, by the time I got a, a big sales organization up and running at ZipWhip, like I was really into the rituals. I believe that the rituals are really important. And so every team, every manager, I wanted them to have a team meeting every single week. And then I wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one every week. And those are just kind of the basics of like, of. and then we, we would have our, an all sales organization meeting every week. And then we'd have all companies every quarter and stuff like that. And so I think when you get, when the company gets to a certain size, like having those rituals is really, really important. At a smaller size, I still think that, you know, having a one-on-one -on -one with each employee every week, um, in addition to providing them the support that they need through the day-to-day -day is, is, is part of enablement, um, you know, part of allowing them to be successful. I think that like, but that one-on-one -on -one meeting is not necessarily tell me every detail about everything that's happening every week. You know, a lot of it is like, what, what is the most important information or help that I can provide you to move your deals along? And so you're really looking for salespeople who will take ownership of that meeting and will uh, and will direct you instead of you having to micromanage and direct them. 100%. So let's just continue grilling on the CEOs who don't have too much of experience in the sales part. Uh, so we did on our pre-interview call talk about something called over-demoing or basically over-selling. Yeah. Uh, can you describe that process and then we're going to go into the follow-up questions on you know how to avoid it yeah i think every a mistake that almost every ceo will make at the very beginning when they first have their product in market and they 
identified a customer who's interested in looking at it is that they'll want to, you know, they, they've, you've spent so much time building this piece of software that has all these details and you'll want to show every detail and you'll think that every detail is important. And so over demoing, you know, I've, I, I've done this and I've talked to lots of other founders who've done this where you're like, okay, I spent 45 minutes showing someone every little piece of the software. And at the end, I could tell that they were really bored and they couldn't get off, get wait to get off the call, not because <laughs> they're not interested in what we're doing, but because I just showed them too much. Mm -hmm. And so what you want to do as a, as a CEO seller and the sellers that you hire, if they're good, they'll know this. But what you want to do is you want to think about like, what is really important for, to the, to this persona? Like, how can I get them to the business results that it's going to create for them by showing them the least product possible? And, you know, and there's a process early on as well, you know, in, in sales, we call it discovery, where you ask questions mm -hmm. before you demo to find out what are the business results that your software can produce or your product can produce that they really care about. And so now you're not showing them every detail of the software anymore. That's the over demoing. What you're trying to show them is just the pieces that tie to the business results that are really, really important to them. Yep. 100%. Uh, if you're jumping on a demo without a discovery call prior, you're doomed to fail. <laughs> Personal advice, I think for me, what worked best to avoid over-demoing is preparing a small pitch deck and like having a structure of all the features that are on in your product. And then after the uh, discovery call, you just select or like mark in red the ones that you're prep prepping to actually demo. And then before the demo starts, you say, hey, here are the things that we're going to go over. Does that sound good? Or do you want to, you know, do you see anything else on this chart that you want to see or take like a closer look at? Highly recommend, works perfectly, engages the clients or potential client in this case, and also keeps you organized and have to, makes you do it <laughs> beforehand. So that is a strategy that worked for me in the past. Um, so we covered some sales parts here. Now let's go into the main subject of today's episode, which is the process of hiring. It's a pain in the ass, especially if you don't have an HR person who has experience in that. And especially in sales, because again, the, the, the job of a salesperson is to sell. And when you're hiring someone, they're selling themselves. So they have a competitive advantage there. So with that in mind, Lucas, what is your advice on making the first sales hire? Who should you know founders look for and where most importantly? Yeah, uh, I think a, a very common mistake with the first sales hire is hiring someone who has a track record of doing of executing a sales playbook at a high level. And so, you know, maybe they, they come from a company, maybe the company has a good brand, maybe it doesn't, but it definitely was, you know, the, the product was in market when they were there. And, you know, maybe they were one of the top performers and you think, oh, I'm going to bring all that performance to my company. But you know, when you're making your first hire, your company doesn't have the same traction and doesn't have the same playbook. In the playbook that they ran at their previous companies, there's a good chance that it won't work at your company. And so what you're looking for is people who, who have experience and really enjoy kind of being the first seller or one of the first sellers at a company that's, that's building its traction. They have to be incredibly resourceful. They have to be able to take ownership. They have to be good at kind of experimenting with messaging and seeing what type of messaging really lands with the customers. And so when you're, when you're the fifth hire somewhere, you don't do, 
much experimenting with messaging. You know, you kind of take the messaging that's been working from all the other sellers and from the marketing and you use that. Those are the things that you say to your customer. But when you're the first seller, you have to be like really kind of dynamic and, and, you know, be able to be able to create something out of nothing. And so it really is a different job and you have to think about it very differently in terms of the profile. hundred percent. Now on to the second question of that first question, which is where to look for them. So should founders just post it on LinkedIn? Should they go straight to uh, job boards like Indeed, Classdoor, and all those other job boards where masses are looking for positions? Or should they focus on more niche fields like AngelList, where it's just exclusively startups? Yeah, I, I always think that the answer is all of the above um, when, when you're trying to build a pipeline of talent. Uh, the, you never know where they're going to come from. I mean, I, I, in addition to that, I'd work your personal networks hard. Like if you know someone who you think would be good at the job, mm -hmm. I'd ask them if they know anyone who, who, who like similar to them, who has similar experience to them, who might be looking. If you're in a incubator or a, um, an accelerator, you know, I would ask the mentors there how to find them, where to find them, if they know. So I the I think the answer is, you know, with within the time limits and constraints that you have, look at every channel possible yep. to, to find talent. 100%. Now let's go over to the questions. That's a big part of the interview. A lot of people get it wrong, myself included, by the way, I did make a lot of bad hires in the past. <laughs> so learned the hard way. But for you personally, what have you seen to be the best practices? And again, yardstick, that's kind of their, your focus. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about that strategy. How do you prepare those questions? Are there any questions that you have to ask on every single sales interview? Or is there not a single silver bullet? Yeah, so I think the important part is in, is some of the things we've been talking about already is like making sure you get the profile nailed first. Like if you start with the questions instead of starting, like this is what they really need to do and this is what they really need to accomplish, you're going to end up with the wrong questions. And so you get the you get the ideal candidate profile really nailed first. And part of that is like, what are the goals that this person needs to accomplish? And really thinking about if they've been successful a year from now, what have they done? Or if they have not been successful, what have they not done? Like getting that down on paper, you know, what are what uh, behaviors and competencies are they going to need to accomplish those goals? And then that kind of leads you into the questions. And so um, the, the questions themselves are in a way are, uh, like a lot of people want to start there, but if you just have some neat interview questions, that won't lead to success. It's really like really having thought about the whole process. And mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm going to put everyone through the same process because I built the process ahead of time. And so, you know, you might think about, all right, in a very small company, it's going to be three interviews. It's going to be me, my co-founder and, you know, whoever the head of product or whatever. Um, or maybe, and and so what are each of us going to cover? Like we've, we've established what the important goals are, what the important characteristics are. And now you'll, you'll get, if you ask every candidate the same small set of questions where each question is really like a conversation in each interview, you'll start to get differentiated answers between the candidates that lead you to the right path. If you don't have a plan and you just show up and you have a couple questions and you just kind of chit chat and then think yep. of some questions, 
then you're not actually going to end up with differentiated answers and you're going to end up making a guess about who to hire and who not to hire. So 100%. there's a lot of interview questions that I love, but I think the important part is getting is like, if you do the planning, if you do a couple hours of planning ahead of time, it's going to save you hundreds or thousands of hours of pain down the road. And so before you get to the question, get those other pieces in place. Um, it, you know, is, is what I always tell people. And that's a big part of what Yardstick makes it easy to do is, is, uh, um, you know, not to turn this into an advertisement, but, but <laughs> someone who doesn't know how to do that, we, it, you know, the software kind of hold your, holds your hand and walk, walks you through that to create a, a consistent and rigorous process. Oh yeah, no, that's perfect. Let's actually, again, Fundraising Radio is a nonprofit. The podcast part of it, the podcast branch is a complete nonprofit. We're not getting anything out of this. This is not advertisement, but this is one of the reasons why I brought Lucas, which is they have a very structured approach to this specific process, which I don't see that often. I myself have not done it in the past. I've done exactly what Lucas said. I have like a few questions prepared and then the rest of it, I just come up on the fly because, you know, I'm a host of a podcast. I, I'm going to come up with questions on the fly, right? No, I, I failed miserably. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about that structure process. Uh, let's say founders don't want to use Yardstick. Where to begin? You said begin with basically creating the ICP for a salesperson, right? And then yeah. can you come up or can you can you give us like a few examples of good versus bad questions for the interview? Just like one or two, just so that we have all point of reference or at least some kind of idea of what what those look like. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I like to ask in the screening call, um, again, so this is some this, a screening call to us is I'm having one conversation to decide whether I want to put them through a more rigorous mm -hmm. interview process. So on the screening call, I'll ask a question like, can you tell me about something complex that you understand well that you can explain to me in 30 seconds? And so from that, I'm just trying to get an idea of their ability to articulate complex ideas and make them simple and make them digestible. That is a uh, good question. Hard uh, to come up with the answer on the fly, though. I feel like <laughs> I'm struggling. I'm trying to come up on the fly. I'm struggling here. Yeah. One of the things I like to tell people before the interviews is like, you know, some of these questions are going to take a minute for you to think of a good example. Okay. And it's right. fine to take time. It's fine for us to, you know, I know after four seconds of silence, people start to become uncomfortable. Let's just kind of put that aside. <laughs> it's okay to just tell me you need to hold on for a minute, you know, mm -hmm. maybe write yourself a few notes before you answer. That's okay with the types of questions that I ask, because some of them are going to be a little bit challenging. Mm -hmm. Does sound like that. And one example of a bad question, just so that everyone can steer clear of those types of questions. Sell me this pen. Um, <laughs> God damn. All right. Why is it such a bad question? Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, what, what we're not looking, we are looking for a certain communication ability by a salesperson, which, you know, I think that that other question gets yeah. you, but what we're not looking for is people who can just go and pitch anything without any context. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when we're looking for sellers, as you said, we're looking for people who can do good discovery, who are good listeners and not people who can just, uh, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily, selling is not necessarily about just about being fast on your feet, which, you know, I think sell me this pen gets to. It's also yep. about like building a plan and having a plan and being able to listen and being able to, you know, connect it to business value. And so selling the pen is, is kind of, it's, 
um, I would say measuring like one of the minor skills of sales of being good on your feet. Oh, 100%. Also, not a big fan of that question. Never asked it. Never been asked that question, thankfully. But who knows? Life is long. Maybe I'll run into that. Um, <laughs> hopefully not, though. All right. So let's let's move on to a different part of the interview process for candidates, not, not our interview today. Uh, so on our pre-interview call, you mentioned something that I'm not particularly familiar with. I've kind of ran into this before in the past. Uh, however, Again, I'm not exactly sure what it is or how it operates or how important it is in the hiring process. So you mentioned behavioral interview questions. What yeah. are those and how do you structure them and what what is their goal? What, what goal are you trying to achieve through those questions? So a behavioral interview question is a question where you're trying to get the candidate to tell you about their past behavior. Um, people do change over time sometimes, but generally past behavior is the best indicator of future success. And in a behavioral interview question, as one of the follow-ups, if you can ask them the lessons that they've learned, you know, it'll kind of show you their ability to change as well. So a behavioral interview question for me is a question that starts with, tell me about a specific time, dot, dot, dot. That dot, dot, dot is usually a, a challenging problem that they faced. Uh, and so the, the a, a, a alternative type of question is a situational question, which is, like, tell me what you would do if you were in this situation. And behavioral questions, there is research that shows for knowledge-based jobs, for jobs that have a certain level of complexity, behavioral interview questions where you ask them to tell you about past behavior is more predictive than situational where you ask them to tell you, you know, how in the situation, you're basically asking, you know, how experienced or smart are you about that this situation, which is, less important than what you actually did when you were in a similar situation. So uh, a, a behavioral interview question that you might get would be like, tell me about a specific time when you're, um, when you received feedback that was difficult to hear. Yep, and those are good and a couple other comments about behavioral questions, okay. if we have time for it. Yes, um, we do. The, uh, each, I look at each behavioral interview question as a jumping off point to a conversation. So if you were doing an interview of just behavioral interview questions, you might only have three to five questions in the interview in like a 30 to 45 minute interview. Mm -hmm. And because each of those questions, you're going you're gonna, to you know, try to understand exactly what the situation was that the candidate was in, the, um, the, the actions that they took, the results that they got, and any lessons that they learned out of the situation. And so you're going to keep asking follow-up questions mm -hmm. until you answer all of those things. And you're going to, you know, kind of be taking notes and recording the evidence that they're giving you on each of those so that you can use it to compare later. And again, you're going to have asked every candidate the same question. And so you're going to get differentiated responses. And so each one of those, so it's not, when I say structured interview and behavioral interview questions, it's not a rote thing, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. It's, hey, we're going to have a small number of questions, each of which is designed to elicit a conversation. And we're going to spend, go deep and spend, you know, 10 to 15 minutes on each question so that we really get a, a a full picture of how this candidate deals with challenges, how they've dealt with mm -hmm. challenges in the past, and what they would change about how they would dealt with that kind of challenge in the future. Right. 
and those are great and I'll be honest with you here I don't think that they're particularly indicative because most of those answers don't have solid backing so they're unverifiable so the candidate can say anything but again it's it's just how the candidate approaches it so well, so I, I think that when I, I think that there's your you bring up an important point and, and I want to reemphasize something to go with that point. If you spend two or three minutes on the behavioral question, then the candidate can make something up, which I, I think is what you're saying. But if you spend 10 to 15 minutes on the question, the candidate, you're going to find out whether the candidate really knows the details of solving the problem of you know, the deal got stuck at the CFO. Mm -hmm. And so like they're, you're, they're going to tell you, you know, they're going to get into detail where they're telling you about a specific customer. They're telling you specific stories. You're going to go beyond where they can make stuff up. If you spend 10 to 15 minutes on it, if you spend three or four minutes on it, you're right. It's not going to be differentiated. It's not going to be predictive because you're not going to go deep enough to find the real answers. And so part of it is like making sure with each of these, what they really know, you know, how, how, what, you know, how did they really deal with the real challenge? And so it is go like, I mean, you are, you should have your guard up. Like, do they really know what it's like to do this? I'm going to find out. I'm going to ask them specific questions to get there. That's number one. And number two is that, you know, you should always, um, in these stories, you're going to learn about different people that they've worked with. And I think you should always make the list of who you want to do reference calls with and not ask the candidate for their list of reference calls. Mm -hmm. They're talking about managers. They're talking about CEOs that they had in previous jobs. Write those people down. And then afterwards, you can verify this stuff. If you say, hey, I'd love to do a reference call with your former CEO or your former manager. Can you help set that up for me? And top performers will be happy to set it up with the people that you choose low performers will only want to provide uh, references to people that they've chosen. That's actually a good point. That's another extraordinarily part, important part of the interview. A lot of people, including myself, once again, <laughs> messed that part out. Uh, so now I would, I, what, one caveat on that, you never want to ask them to do a reference call with their current manager or their current CEO. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely not. No, 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 no way in hell. That, that is just bluntly rude. Um, Good, good point out. Uh, I was just kind of hoping that people will know that based on the context of common sense. Um, all right. So on this note, last question on the interview part, and then we're going to move on to the very last question of the whole interview. And the last question on the interview part would be, what do you think about behavioral tests? You know, uh, I've seen a handful of companies doing um, like person persona tests where you answer a ton of questions to figure out if you're introvert and extrovert or like leader and things like that. I cannot really put it into words now because I've done it over three yeah. years ago at this point. Yeah. Do you think it's reasonable to do that as like part of the interview process or part of the whole onboarding process or not really? There's, so I'm not, I, I, there's a few of those tests that I'm, I'm certified as an assessor and the ones that I'm certified in you know, which are are some of the well-known ones, things like DISC, the DISC profile. And I would, I would say I'm not certified in Myers-Briggs, but I'd say the same for Myers-Briggs. I think they're better as management tools than as pre-hire assessment tools. Um, like it's, you know, you don't want to say, hey, it's, you know, it could be tempting to say in DISC, I only want to hire someone who's a high D and a high I for sales. 
then that's not a good way to build your sales organization. And, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, you know, given how much time we have right now, but I just don't think that's a good way to build your sales organization. I do think knowing someone is a high D and a high I as a manager tells me how I, don't I can know. I'm, I'm interrupting you sure, Lucas, because I don't know what a high D or high I is. Okay. <laughs> what yeah, is that? Sorry. Well, so, so one of these tests, it's called disc and the, and when you take the, when you take the test, you're either, you, you know, you get scores for your D, which is your dominance uh -huh. for your I, which is, I can't remember what I stands for, but it's like your kind of your optimism and enthusiasm mm -hmm. and energy. Your S is steadiness and C is compliance. So it, mm -hmm. it gives you a, 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 a grade on each of these or a, a score on each of these. And so some people think like, oh, I just want someone who, you know, as a salesperson who's high in dominance and high in kind of energy and enthusiasm. And, um, and, and knowing that, and that's not a good way to build your sales organization, but it is good to know that when you're managing someone to like, know their, their, you know, what, mm -hmm. like how they like to be related to how they like to be motivated. And, um, and it's good to know that about your manager. So I think it's a great kind of relational tool, um, not great for pre-hire assessments. Now there are other pre-hire assessments that are maybe more specific to sales or more specific to certain types of roles that I'm not as that you know that I'm not as familiar with and so I'm not trying to write off the whole thing for pre-hire assessments <laughs> but generally the ones that I've spent the most time with I've come to the conclusion that they're better for management than they are for pre-hire assessments interesting good to know and yeah it does sound like that is exactly the case I'm with you on this one Theoretically speaking, I've never actually done this uh, myself, so don't know the results, but sounds reasonable enough, so I am with you. And on this note, let's go on into the very last question of today's interview, which is, what do you want the listener to do as soon as this episode is over, hopefully to get closer to the successful first hire or successful first sale, regardless, it has to be a small, short, actionable thing. What do I want the listener to do? Um... That's a good question. I'm not sure how to answer that. Uh, you know, I think that um, the 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 challenge of being an early stage startup is um, sticking with it and being persistent in the face of you know challenge after challenge. So I think what I would say, I, I'm not sure if it if it meets meets your smart criteria, but if I'm talking to founders in general out there, I think the thing I would say is like keep with it. Um, you know, there's it, there's going to be so many. So many um, things along the way, so many opportunities to to bow out, and uh, the, the the ones that make it are the ones that keep with it, that see it through um, in the face of challenge after challenge. Yeah, that's an optimistic take here. Um, my call to action is going to be simple as always: check out the description of this episode. Going to take you like one minute, and I'm going to make sure to follow up with Lucas to ask for some resources maybe relevant books on the interviewing process, maybe uh, uh, websites explaining like, how to structure that part, maybe idea generation tools, anything that's relevant to what we were just talking about today, I'm going to drag out of Lucas and include in the description of this episode. And of course, Yardstick is also going to be there. So if you want things to be done for you, definitely check it out. Uh, and on this note, wrapping up and have a good day. Sounds good.